you might have been able to claim ignorance two and a half years ago. You, you cannot claim ignorance in February of 2024. At this point, if you're a military leader and you are claiming ignorance now, it's because you're willfully ignorant. You are willfully um, not looking in, at information that's just readily available right now, and you're not doing it because you're afraid of what you might find. Welcome back to the Feds, insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. I am Stephanie Weidel. Before we begin our episode for today, I'd like to encourage each one of you to like, comment, subscribe to, and share our podcast episodes with your friends, neighbors, and family members. Share these especially with those who are waking up to the realization that our country is on the precipice of becoming an authoritarian form of government, the exact opposite of what our founding fathers set up this country to be. We still have a voice and can still demand accountability, but we have to speak up and act immediately. Within our organization, our members have armed themselves with the law and stood up for their rights as well as yours. Support Feds for Freedom at fedsforfreedom.org as we continue to seek reform to keep our country a constitutional society all from the inside out. Welcome to the Feds, insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. At Feds for Freedom, we value constructive dissent and healthy debate. The views and opinions shared in today's episode are those of the speaker alone and do not express the views or opinions of the U.S. government or any other employer. Today, we are joined by former Lieutenant Colonel Brad Miller, who is one of the principal co-organizers of the Declaration of Military Accountability and the one who initially rolled out the open letter to the American public on January 1st, 2024. Brad graduated from West Point in 2003 and served 19 years on active duty within the United States Army. Today, we talk about his experience being a battalion commander within the Army in the fall of 2021, what caused him to resign, his thoughts on talking with military personnel who see no issue with the military's illegal behavior, and the effects on the country that stem from a military no longer grounded in the Constitution. Welcome to the Feds, Brad. Thanks so much for coming on with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Tell us about you and what piqued your interest into joining the military and especially the Army. Oh, that's a good question. So I guess I'd kind of always been interested in, uh, in military service growing up, uh, particularly when I was in high school, I was, I was looking at it and uh, decided that I was going to apply to some of the service academies. I ended up applying to West Point and also to the Naval Academy. I even visited the Naval Academy a couple of times, never visited West Point, uh, ended up at West Point, so the Military Academy, which is in New York. And um, I did not come from a military family, but I just kind of always been interested in it. And yeah, ended up at West Point and somehow graduated. And, you know, here we are 20 or so years later. So what were you in 2020 within the Army? What rank did you have? Yeah, so in, uh, in early 2020, February, February 1st, if I remember correctly, I would have been promoted to lieutenant colonel. So kind of, uh, I, I was stationed in Korea at the time. I was finishing up my time in Korea. I'd ended up, uh, I, had, I had been there for three years. So I was there from 2017 until the summer of 2020. So kind of in my last couple of months, I was promoted to the rank of lieutenant colonel in the army. And what are the duties of a lieutenant colonel? And how, what is the kind of experience that you need to have to become a lieutenant colonel? So I would say there are two primary duties. 
um, you are either going to be a commander or you're going to be a staff officer for a higher commander. So what's a commander in the military for those who maybe aren't familiar with what the military does? So a commander is the most important position in the military. I mean, we are very commander driven. Why? Because commanders lead their organizations, but also it's a very specific billet in the military because it also comes with a ton of responsibility. Um, I would say potentially the foremost of which is the responsibility to adjudicate the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So there are very specific authorities that come along with being a commander. So a way to look at it would be um, all commanders are certainly leaders. It is the foremost leadership position in the military, but not all leaders are commanders. You know, there are plenty of leaders in the military, but a commander is a very specific position of responsibility of a specific unit, and there are very clear uh, specifically communicated authorities that come along with that position. And all of that is kind of known as the uniform code of military justice. And what I would say about it is as a commander, ultimately you are responsible for everything that your unit does that does or fails to do. Um, and the other position that I mentioned was a staff officer. So what's a staff officer? A staff officer then is an officer that works on the staff of a higher commander. So if you're a Lieutenant Colonel, and you're not a commander or during the, you know, you might be a lieutenant colonel for years, but you may only be a commander for, you know, two years. So during that other time, you may be an officer on the staff of a higher commander. So potentially a, uh, you know, a general. So in 2020, you were in Korea. Is that correct? Yeah, I was in Korea. Okay. So what did you start seeing then? So what did I start seeing then? So, you know, I guess we all would have started hearing about, you know, what would come to be COVID. Um, for me, I can remember first hearing about this on the news in very late January of 2020. Now, because I'm in East Asia, I would say people were maybe a little bit more concerned than people back in the United States were at the time, because the initial reports are, you know, this is coming out of China. And then we'd start to hear more specifically about what supposedly had occurred in Wuhan. And so I would say, um, your Korean citizens, but then also your members of the U.S. military command that were stationed in Korea. I mean, people were kind of starting to get concerned in very early 2020. So that would have been kind of what we were initially hearing about COVID. And then, uh, you know, move forward through the spring of 2020 into the early summer. And at the very beginning of June of 2020, that's when I finished kind of the three years that I'd served in Korea. And then I uh, I moved back to my back to the States to my follow-on duty station, which was in Kansas. I was there for one year, and then in the summer of 2021, I, uh, I moved to uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So how many years had you been in the military uh, in 2021? Uh, 18. So I graduated from West Point in 2003. So 18 years later, at this point, I was a lieutenant colonel, and I had been selected to command a battalion within the 101st Airborne, which is the division that is found at uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So right at the 18-year mark, which is pretty typical for someone who gets selected for battalion command, um, I took command of that battalion uh, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. When were you aware that the narrative that you all were being fed was perhaps not quite right? Oh, I mean, I was skeptical from day one. I mean, I mean, once, once there, it, it, it appeared that there was something to what we were hearing on the news, um, I was immediately skeptical because I had long been skeptical of what the government was 
telling us about anything. And what brought you to that point? So what were you seeing within the government that made you skeptical? Um, in 2020 or, or long beforehand? Long beforehand. Oh, I mean, I would say the first thing was 9-11, you know, and th this is all the way back in 2007. I mean, I almost got out of the military because um, because I got to a point in 2007 where I just felt like we had been lied to about that. And then... Like, how did you get to that point, though? Um, Just doing research on my own. So I'll tell you this. So I... So I graduated from West Point. Okay, so first of all, I was I was at West Point when 9-11 occurred, you know, which is for those who understand New York geography, the military academy is, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 miles north of ground zero. I mean, I was, you know, I used as a as a cadet at West Point on weekends, I used to run around New York City. But anyway, my, my point is, is I bought the story just like everybody else did. So then a couple of years later, I graduate from West Point. I'm in the army. I deploy to Afghanistan. And, and, and I feel like I am doing my duty for God and country the whole time that I'm there. I'm, I'm there for a year. But I come home and then uh, for whatever, I mean, I just kind of come into contact with some information. I kind of started doing my own research and um, I just never stopped. I just started doing, just getting deeper and deeper into personal research. And um, I would say, I mean, I, I kind of had to go through my own process of cognitive dissonance where I had to kind of realize that, you know, I'm in this weird situation. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a West Point graduate. I'm an army officer. I've already done a deployment to Afghanistan. And now I have information that is, that is coming to me, which, which I, I, I feel has some validity to it. Um, but that clashes with everything that I've been told. These, these very powerful narratives that I've been told my whole life, but also that um, have largely shaped what I have decided to do with my adult life up until that point. So um, I almost got out of the army kind of because of this uh, in early 2009. So I'd already finished my initial commitment that I owed to the army and therefore I, I, I could get out. Um, ultimately, I decided not to, you know, spoiler alert, I did not get out in 2009. And uh, but I never stopped doing my research either. So I was in this weird situation where I loved my country. I took my oath to the Constitution extremely seriously. Uh, I felt like the military, as an organization, had a noble purpose and needed good people in it. Um, but I disagreed heavily with a lot of the decisions that the government was making, and therefore, not necessarily with the military as an institution, but the way in which the military might be employed by um, governmental authorities. So, so yeah, it was. I mean, it put me in a weird position for you know a decade plus, but. Um, but I never, but I, but I did not get out during that that kind of ten or twelve year span between, you know, two thousand nine and then when everything in COVID kind of starts to come to a head in twenty twenty one, because I just always told myself, well, you know, I love my country and 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 the the military needs good people, and uh, so I just kind of wrestled with that, you know, for ten or twelve years. Would you feel comfortable talking about what research you saw with nine eleven that just did not make sense? Well, the first thing that I ever came into contact with was uh, the documentary, which many people have probably seen, you know, Loose Change. That was the first thing I ever saw. And then from there, I, you know, read multiple books and just um, I just realized that the the initial narrative just you just didn't make any sense. And, and, and I still hold to this day. And I know that this is not really the, the topic of the conversation that we were going to have tonight. But but I still hold to this day that a reasonable person who does you know, just a couple of hours of real open-minded research about 9-11 is probably going to um, come away with questions they may not readily have answers to. So um, do you, what was your experience once COVID hit? 
What did you see? And um, what did you experience within the military? So I was very skeptical about everything that we were being told in terms of the narrative. But what was I actually seeing? Um, so between 2020, okay, so whether it was in Korea in 2020, or then Kansas between the summer of 2020 and the summer of 2021, and then kind of the summer, the fall, uh, or the winter of 2021, during that whole entire period, of course, people are masking. So there's a, there's a requirement to wear the mask. Um, and in some cases, there may be the requirement to test. And then, of course, the big one is there's the talk about this so-called vaccine that is going to be produced and that, uh, as we know, would eventually become mandatory in August of 2021. So all of this is kind of happening while I am very skeptical about everything that we're being told. And did you push back um, against the masking yourself? No, I did not. Um, and I'll tell you why. And I'm not saying that this is right or wrong. I'll just tell you the kind of the, the, the calculus that I went through in my own mind. Um, I never liked masking. I never personally believed in it. I did comply with it. Um, and, and if I had to explain why, this is what I would say. Um, everything can't be a red line. So, so you, you kind of have to decide, okay, what do I not like? What do I not agree with? What I will begrudgingly comply with. And then what is a red line that I will, regardless of the cost, I will not cross that red line. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, this was a debate that I had to have with myself. And so I, um, you know, a mask you can take on and off a shot. You can't untake once you take it. And so for me, yeah, I don't think the two are necessarily um, equivalent in that regard. That does not mean, however, that I think that, uh, you know, the masks did what they told us that they do. No, <laughs> but I knew here's the situation that I, that I found myself in. I'm a Lieutenant Colonel, but when, when I show up to Fort Campbell in the summer of 2021, it is very apparent that I am uh, an outlier, a, a significant outlier. I am a Lieutenant Colonel who is about to take command in this division who is wearing a mask, which clearly communicates to everyone that I have not taken the shot because the policy at that time was if you haven't taken the shot, you got to wear a mask. So this is June of 2021. So the shot's been out for months. Plenty of people have already taken it, even though it's not mandatory in the military yet. So when anyone sees me on the base, just walking around, they know when they see me, that's a Lieutenant Colonel that has not taken the shot. Like what's wrong with that guy? He needs to get with the program. Why is he not on the team? It was a very, very stress, probably the most stressful time of my entire career. I mean, I was losing sleep leading up to having to take command of this battalion because, I mean, I knew. I knew that at any time the, the mandate was going to be implemented, and I knew that I would eventually be fired over this. I didn't necessarily know that I would ultimately lose my career, but I knew. On the day that I took command of my battalion, June 10th, 2021, during the ceremony, during the change of command ceremony, in which I formally assumed command of the battalion, I knew in my head there is no way I make it through two years of this command, which would be the typical duration of the assignment. Um, and I mean, that, that turned out to be accurate. I was only in command for four and a half months. But I mean, this is kind of the situation that I was in. So um, I'm giving kind of a, you know, a, a long-winded answer to your question, but I kind of knew that it would be like this. And I knew that it was going to be a significant deal when a battalion commander in the 101st 
refuses the shot, that's going to be a big deal. So I had to make sure I had to be a little bit strategic in when do I kind of stand up against the behemoth that is the army? Because when I do that, it's going to be a big deal. And so I said, it's got to be over the shot, not necessarily a mask or even testing. Now that said, that said, there are people who critique me for that. And there may be some validity to those critiques. I mean, I got a good friend of mine and you probably know him, you know, Mark Bashaw. I mean, he stood up against all of that, you know, the mask, the testing. Um, it is true that those were never FDA approved as well. But, but again, I'm just telling you kind of the decision-making calculus that went through my mind, which was for me, everything can't be a red line. And for me, the shot's a red line. And this is going to be a big deal when I pull this trigger. And so I got to do it at the right moment. And then when I did it, I mean, it was kind of a big deal. And this is where everyone has their own convictions, their own conscience, and they have their own um, their own path forward in this. And it needs to be, especially religious convictions, must be honored um, in this in this arena. Sure. So, okay, so when the mandates did come out, what happened? Yeah, so I was never going to take the shot. I mean, there was there was a zero percent chance that I was ever going to take the shot, and I made that very clear to my um, next higher commanders. So, as a battalion commander, my my direct boss is the brigade commander. The brigade is the unit that is you know higher than the battalion, and above that is the division. So, before the mandate even went into effect, my brigade commander and the division commander both knew that I obviously had not taken the shot and was not going to take the shot. I mean, I made that abundantly clear. They knew that. So the mandate goes into effect. Um, those who had not taken the shot up to that point, And I will tell you that 80% of my battalion had already taken the shot before I even took command before it was even mandatory. Um, but when the shot became mandatory, so the, the mandate was implemented August 24th, 2021. Those who had not taken it up to that point, there was this formal process that you would go through in which you would be specifically ordered to take the shot. You would refuse. They'd make you go talk to like the, um, you know, the military medical personnel. So there's kind of this process you had to go through administratively to kind of formally refuse the shot. And uh, I formally refused it. And then on October 22nd, 2021, I was suspended from command. I was officially relieved of command six days later on October 28, 2021. Wow. And, and so wait, what was their reasoning? Because there is a process of of refusing things like this. Why were you not given the, um, the path forward with that? What was their reasoning? Well, so I, I did not put in for a religious accommodation request. Um, I started to do that process and I ultimately did not go through with it. And, and this is why. So I was a hard refusal. So um, it's not that I did not have strong religious objections. I did. I do. It's that for me, I didn't want to communicate to the army or to the government that my only problems with these shots were the way in which they had been produced or developed. You know, I do have those concerns. But I had other concerns as well. And so for me, I didn't want anyone to think that I was conceding that the shots were safe, effective, or necessary, and that my only problem was the way that they had been produced or developed. No, I don't concede. I, I was never going to concede that they are safe, effective, or necessary. And so in my mind, um, 
I didn't want to put in for religious accommodation requests because I didn't want to even make it look like I was making those concessions. I was against this wholesale. And I communicated that to my, uh, to my direct boss, the brigade commander, because he actually asked me, he said, Brad, where's your religious accommodation request? I said, Hey, sir, I was going to do one. And I decided against it. I'm against this wholesale. And I kind of, you know, gave him that spiel and he came back and he said, I respect that, you know? So he, um, I mean, he never went to bat for me, but he also never, he never personally tried to coerce me either. You know, so I'll give, I'll give, you know, I'll give him some due credit. How were you treated by the other commanders or military personnel that were of similar rank as you? So in my brigade, the brigade consists of seven battalions. So I had, I had six other peers in the brigade. You know, we were all battalion commanders together. They're all, they're all great dudes. They're, um, they didn't agree with me. I'm sure they thought that I was. Uh, being unnecessarily zealous and, and, but they're all good dudes. I mean, I, you know, I kind of thought we were friends except for this one issue. Um, but I will say I have had almost zero contact with them, um, in the two years since I got relieved of command. And I, I mean, I think I've had very passing contact with maybe two or three of them. And I mean, extremely passing and with the others, zero contact. So that's unfortunate. It is what it is. Were you put in a position of admonishing others for not taking the shots? Well, no, because I was relieved so quickly. <laughs> um, so, so once I was out of command, I, I, I wasn't even there to have to adjudicate the cases of those that would have been my subordinates that would have refused and therefore would have had to uh, meet the consequences of their own refusal. Um, you know, I mean, they, they pulled me out pretty quickly. So what happened between August 24th when the mandate went into effect and then October 22nd when I was pulled out of command? Well, I mean, these, these things take time. You know, there was a formal process you had to go through to, to officially refuse the shot. We also went through a, uh, an extremely significant and intense month-long training rotation in September so I was in this weird limbo where I'm trying to command a battalion in this um in this training this this extremely intense training scenario all of September when in the back of my mind I I know that you know my command is about to uh about to end and and therefore you know even my career is going to be in jeopardy. Um so so no not necessarily because I was pulled out so quickly. The other thing that I will say about that is when I took command so between June 10th and August 24th, when the mandate goes into effect, I made it known to my battalion that uh, I had not taken the shot, I was not going to take the shot, and that I wasn't going to pressure anybody to take the shot or not take the shot. That was a personal decision, um, and, and, and I didn't want to try to sway individuals one way or the other. I didn't see it as my place. Now, even before the shot was mandatory, there was immense coercion taking place, and I told my battalion, I don't care what's happening, I don't care what's happened before, and I don't care what kind of coercion comes from the top. It will stop with me. I'm not going to coerce anybody. And I told my unvaxxed personnel, I met with them in small groups. And I said, listen, this mandate is probably going to go into effect at some time very soon. And we don't know when, but you got to be prepared. I'm not here to tell you what to do, but whatever you're going to do, you got to decide now. If you decide to take the shot, if you decide to not take the shot, but just have a plan you know, if you're married and you got a family, whatever you're going to do, because, you know, there, there may be consequences um, if you decide to continue to refuse. You just got to have a plan. And, and I would tell people, 
it's got to be your decision. You guys, you guys know what I've said. I'm not going to take it. If you want to know my personal reasons for it, then, you know, come, come find me in my office, come talk to me. You know, we can have a, a one-on-one conversation about it. And I did have very junior soldiers come and see me in my office and have one-on-one discussions about it. And for those who aren't necessarily aware of military culture, I'm, I'm a real cool guy. I'm very approachable, even as a battalion commander. But I will tell you, it is no small thing for a 20-year-old private to go see the old man, you know, to go see the battalion commander, regardless of how cool your battalion commander. That's no small thing. So for young soldiers who, you know, 19, 20 years old, maybe have like a year, year and a half of service in, to come seek me out and come and sit down and have a one-on-one conversation and express to me their concerns that, you know, they don't want to take this and they're, and, they're, and they're feeling the pressure coming from Department of Defense to take it. I mean, it, it, it was it was uncomfortable. And they would come and they would kind of, you know, in some ways, you know, bear their soul to me. And it was uh, it was heartrending in some cases. I mean, I had, I had soldiers in my office in tears. How many cases of those did you see? So, okay, I had about 550 soldiers in my battalion, and then I had another 150 that kind of belonged to my battalion in an administrative capacity. So 80% were already, you know, had already taken the shot before I even took command. So we're already only talking about, you know, maybe 110 roughly. Um, Between June when I took command and August before it was mandatory, some of those 110 had already decided to take it. So, so we're already talking about kind of a small pool. Um, and then just from external pressures, not from me, but just from external pressures from the system, there were many others that chose to take it. So I would like to tell you that through my example, I had a lot of resistance in my battalion. I would like to be able to tell you that. Now, maybe we did have a little bit more resistance in my battalion than some of the others, but um, unfortunately... I still had plenty of soldiers in my battalion that ultimately took the shots, even those that kind of held out. Um, but not everybody. I mean, clearly there were some who who did not. Is there a complacency with the illegal and unconstitutional behavior of the military within military ranks? Yeah, immense. And and it's um. I mean, how do how do I say this? So they're not. It's it's. It's almost like a like a meta a, a meta complacency. What do I mean? It's like they're complacent about being complacent. So so here's what I mean by that: is there are people who are being complacent. They, they don't even necessarily know that they're being complacent. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it's it's they they are so complacent and they've become complacent about their complacency to a degree that they don't even necessarily recognize it. I know I just said a bunch of words and everybody's probably lost. I'm not even sure I just follow what I just said. But but here's what I mean. If you ask people, particularly if they are lieutenant colonels, do you care about your oath to the Constitution? They're going to say yes. And many of them are going to mean it, okay? But then you take their actions over the last couple of years and you see that their actions cannot be reconciled with what they may truly believe, you know? So So this is where I'm saying... It's not that they're choosing to just kind of sit on the couch. I mean, some of them are, but not all of them. It's it's that they're and, and a lot. You know, I mentioned my own cognitive dissonance. You know, that I went through in the military earlier in my career. A lot of them are are, are feeling that now, and they're many of these people. They are good people, and many of them are still friends of mine. Right? They 
are in a situation where they have found themselves down a dark alley and they don't know how they got there. And here's how that happened. Listen, we were all lied to about the whole COVID narrative to include the shots. And so in the military, people didn't necessarily understand on August 24th, 2021, that this was as unlawful as it is. And everyone is telling them that it's legal. All the military lawyers are telling them that it's legal. All the military medical person, when I say all, I don't mean literally all, but virtually all, all the military medical personnel are telling them that like, oh, you know, COVID's, you know, super crazy and these vaccines are, you know, safe and effective, et cetera. So uh, I understand, you know, when I view this as charitably as possible, I understand how people started down this alley. They think they're doing the right thing and they get further down the alley and then they realize wait, you're telling me that when this mandate went out and it was predicated upon the existence of an FDA-approved product, but yet there never was an FDA-approved product? You know, like, there are people that have had to grapple with that, but now they're they're already down that alley. They, If they're commanders, they've already kicked people out of the military. They've already mandated people to take this shot potentially against their will, and some of those individuals may now be injured, you know, or worse. So what do you do? And unfortunately, these individuals do not have the depth of character. And I'm just going to call it like it is. They don't have the depth of character or the integrity that once they've gone down that, that alley to turn around and walk back out. But they didn't mean to go down that alley, if that makes sense. You know, They didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to violate my oath to the Constitution. And I'm going to break the law. And I'm going to do it in such a way that destroys the readiness of my own unit. They did not wake up on August 24, 2021 and decide to do that. They were victims of a PSYOP, like you know we all were to, to some degree. And then as more and more information came out, and as it became clearly evident that this um, this mandate was was unlawful, they just couldn't turn around and, and walk back out of the the alley. And, and, and that is um, a deficiency in courage. I mean, I'll, I'll just say that. Yeah, we have a bunch of cowards that are in command across the military. I mean, yes, yes, that's true. Do you think that many commanders actually know that they're in a dark alley? I think some of them do. I th I think a lot of them do. Now, I think a lot of them are questioning, how did I get here? And they feel very uncomfortable. But they're in an organization where everyone else is, is, is down that same dark alley. And so it's very easy for them to just kind of continue to go along to get along. You know, and that's unfortunate because, again... It does show a uh, a lack of courage and integrity, which I would tell you are, I mean, these are indispensable traits when we're talking about people who are military commanders. Mm -hmm. So what other things did you see as battalion commander that were like destructive policies that would put people in those dark alleys, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, there's a lot going on in the military right now. Um you know, a lot of people want to talk about the other policies, kind of the woke policies that are affecting the military. That's true. That that stuff is. Um, where where has that kind of kind of uh, penetrated to the least degree? I would say in your combat units. Your combat units have been kind of the least resistant to those policies. So when you're in a when you're in a combat battalion, a division like the uh, like the the 101st Airborne, um, you can stave some of that off to a degree. But I will tell you, I've been out of battalion command now for, for two years, a little over two years, right? Um, and I, I, I think the, the military has changed a lot in the two years since I was a battalion commander or in the 16 months since I you know, left the Army altogether. So 
when you want to talk about those policies and then you want to talk about what happened with the COVID shop mandate, I mean, they're separate and distinct, but they're not unrelated. We do have leaders at the top of the military who, in my mind, Brad Miller's opinion, are seeking destruction of military readiness. And yes, that is a threat to national security. Yes. Why do you think they're seeking this? That's a great question. And I don't know that I have a great answer, but um, but um, if you wanted to destroy the military, but at least to some degree, you know, veil your actions, you would do what is happening right now. And here's why you would do that. So um, clearly there are powerful networks out there and I, I'm sure people are going to have differing opinions on who or what those networks consist of and that's fine. But, um, but in my mind, it seems that there are powerful networks that have decided that they've got to destroy the uh, United States. If you want to destroy the United States, why do you have to destroy the military? Well, one, because of the, the military might and prowess that the, the military holds just in terms of you know, tanks, bombs, guns, etc. That's the obvious stuff. But why else? What's maybe another more subtle reason? Culture, ethos. The military has a very specific ethos. It has a very specific culture. It would be ineffective as a fighting force if it did not. But here's the other thing. It goes beyond that. But the military has always been a bastion of conservative principles or what it means to be America or Americanism. So if you want to destroy the heart of what America is, you have to get rid of the military. And I'm not just talking about because of, you know, fighter jets and nuclear submarines and tanks and stuff. No, I'm talking about you got to you have to knock out this pillar that represents this central, you know, ethos of what it means to be an American. And that's always been kind of enshrined in our military. You got to get rid of that. And I think that is happening. So, um. Yeah, yeah, I, I think this is extremely problematic. And yes, I think it puts the country at risk. So your military career ended in 2021, and it was a process. I was I was relieved of command in October of 2021. In early 2022, once I realized that um, just how unlawful this is, because even when I got relieved of command, I wasn't even aware at that time. I was never going to take the shots, but even I wasn't aware of the whole, you know, community product, you know, bait and switch that occurred. I probably didn't learn about that until a couple of months after the mandate, maybe closer to December of 2021. I'd already been relieved of command. But once I realized just the the depth of just how clearly unlawful and harmful this was, and I realized that the Department of Defense was not going to walk this back, uh, I ultimately decided to resign for two reasons. One, morally, I just... I take my oath to the Constitution seriously, and I wrote a letter of resignation to the Army that said, um, my values clearly do not align with the values of the senior leaders of the Department of Defense. And, and, and what I meant there was, I take my oath seriously. You guys do not. I don't feel, so it's, it's not that I have a problem with the military as an institution, but I do not feel comfortable serving under the command of leaders that I feel I can't trust. And by this point, uh, so I think I submitted my resignation early March of 2022. So we're, we're six months removed from the mandate, you know, going into effect. It was clearly obvious at this, this point that it was, it was unlawful. Um, and so at this point I said, they're not going to walk this back. I, I can't serve under these individuals. So I decided to resign. The other more practical reason as to why I decided to resign was because the, the word on the street was, 
if you resign, if you refuse the COVID shot and you resign, then you will retain your honorable discharge. If you are forced out, you will be forced out without an honorable discharge. And that ended up happening. So those, so I kind of had a moral reason and then a practical reason as to why I resigned. But I ultimately resigned. My last day in the Army officially was September 15th of 2022. So I've been out for, you know, 16 months, give or take, 17 months. So what are you doing now? I, I hear you have a podcast. You are a volunteer at Children's Health Defense Military Chapter. Tell us what you're doing now. Yeah, so I do some, uh, you know, some paid work for... You know, you know who uh, Dr. Jack is or, or Dr. Yes. James Linesweiler. So, so I do some work with him for his organization, his, you know, online learning community called uh, IPAC-EDU. IPAC stands for the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. So, uh, so I do some work there. I've taught a course. I do some other kind of back-end support with him. Um, uh, there's another company that I do some contract management work for. And then you mentioned Children's Health Defense. So I do some, some unpaid volunteer work for them. A lot of people may be familiar with the organization Children's Health Defense, but they may not know that uh, CHD recently launched a military chapter that's only a couple of months old. It was launched October 6th of this last year, so about four months ago. So I do some uh, some volunteer work for them. And then we've just had some other initiatives that people have started right now to try and call for military accountability. I do you know quite a bit of just you know work on my own uh, with some fantastic people just in that regard as well. So let's talk about the Declaration of Military Accountability. So Rob Rob Green wrote the document, and we have had Rob Green on several times on this um, on this podcast. What was your part to play in it? So Rob is a fantastic dude. I would say Rob is the most courageous person still currently serving in the military right now. I agree. So he's a fantastic dude. You know, I consider him a friend, but I also look up to him. And, uh, and he and I communicate almost daily. Interestingly enough, we have never actually met in person. <laughs> but Rob's a you know tremendous person. I can't say enough good stuff about him. So Rob, you know, you know, he wrote the book, um, defending the Constitution behind enemy lines. It came out on July fourth of last year, twenty twenty three. And then he kind of gets this idea that we need to write an open letter to the American people. So he does. He socializes that document with a small group of us. Uh, I, I was one of those individuals, kind of in this small group that he's socializing the idea. And then kind of the initial draft of the words that he put on paper. Um, that that small group, you know, we kind of tweak it a little bit, offer him a couple of uh, minor edits. We get it down to one page, but but he's the author. Um, then we socialize it with a slightly larger group. We get a total of 231 individuals that put their names on the document. And then we decided, well, what's our rollout plan? And that's when the obvious answer was, well, on January 1st, we're going to send this out to the American people. And Rob approached me and said, hey, Brad, I think you're the guy. I think you're the guy who rolls this out. And I agree. And, and, and here's, here's why we made that decision. I'm not in the military, so it's easier for me to do. I have a little bit more flexibility than those who are currently serving. But I also don't even have a military pension. You know, I served 19 years, three months, and 15 days of active service. I didn't, you know, I didn't make it to 20 years to secure a pension. I mean, I walked away from that. So uh, that is a point of leverage that the military does not have over me. So I've got maybe a little bit more latitude than others would have. So, uh, so I you know, rolled this out on behalf of the, the, the total 231 signatories, and we did it on January 1st. So how did we do it? Um, I sent an email to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and 17 other senior officials in the military 
I attached the Declaration of Military Accountability, which, oh, by the way, people can find at militaryaccountability.com. And um, in this email to these senior Pentagon officials, I said, hey, this document is a pledge from 231 service members or vets to the American people that we are no longer going to stand by while you leaders of the military destroy the organization. Um, you have violated your oath to the Constitution. You have broken the law and you have violated the military's own regulations. We're not going to stand by. We are going to call for accountability. We're going to do everything in our we're going to do everything lawfully that we can in order to hold you accountable so this never happens again and get the military back on the right track. So I sent that email at exactly 4 a.m. D.C. time on January 1st. I turned around and put a post on uh, Twitter or X saying basically the same thing. I put a screenshot of the Declaration of Military Accountability. That post ended up being seen, you know, four plus million times over the course of a couple of weeks. And uh, it just generated a ton of energy. And, you know, here we are now. So what have been the responses of the upper chain of military officials following the publicity of the declaration? Uh, zero. So so they are, and we knew this. I mean, we anticipated this. I mean, they're, they're going to try and ignore us. Our job is to make ourselves unignorable if we can, right? Um, but they, they have to try to ignore us because as soon as they acknowledge us, to some degree, they're legitimizing us. So um, we're, we're not surprised that they're ignoring us. You know, Rob will tell you that they've also tried as much as possible to ignore his book. And we've, we've done a lot. I mean, we have, we have sent copies of his books to senior military leaders. You know, I mean, so we're, so it's not, so the, the declaration of military accountability is kind of an outgrowth of things that were already happening. It wasn't just a one-off, but you know, my point is, is that you've got this small cadre of individuals that are going to do everything possible to, you know, I'll go back and use that term I just said to make ourselves unignorable. And it's, here's our claim. We're not trying to circumvent the constitution. We're not calling for a coup. We're not trying to do anything crazy at all. Exactly the opposite. What we're saying is you guys, you senior military officials, you violated the constitution. You broke the law. Mm-hmm. You violated the military's own regulations. All we are asking is for the framework that already exists. It's enshrined in the Constitution and in the system of laws that we already have and, and the, the military regulations that are an outgrowth of that. We're just asking for that to be followed. And yes, we're using strong words. You know, people get a little bit nervous when they when they hear us use words like uh, court martial. But yes, there's a system in place for people in the military that are under the authority of the Uniform Code of Military Justice to be held accountable for infractions that they have committed. And again, we just want the law to be followed. We want investigations to be conducted. We want people to have to answer for their actions. We we want I mean we want you know trials to occur, but again, we're not we're not asking for anybody to be punished without in in such a way as to where their rights would be deprived. That's what happened to us. Therefore, we're not trying to do that to anyone else. We just want the law and the Uniform Code of Military Justice to be upheld. That's what we're asking for. We're not trying to circumvent the law in any way. Absolutely. I heard that there were a bit of, a bit of rumblings uh, from lower level military officials. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, are there people who criticize what we're doing? Yes, of course. Uh, I mean. I heard that some were starting to get a little bit nervous. I'm sure they are. They, mm. they, they, they should. They should be getting nervous, you know? I mean, they broke the law. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and let's just be honest for a second. So people 
People are dead, okay? Uh, service members were coerced to take these shots, and some of them are now dead. Others are permanently debilitated. Other people lost their careers. I lost my career, and I would never ever take what happened to me and stack that up against somebody who's now got, you know, Guillain-Barre or, or some other extreme physical debilitation, you know? But then take that one step further. Well, what about people, what about, you know, people who, who, have, who have lost their lives? And for those who want to question just how pervasive that has been in the military, well, I mean, there is the data. There's the DMED system, the Defense uh, Medical Epidemiological Database. Um, uh, I, I, I have not, you know, I didn't work in the military medical arena, so I'm not telling you that, that I have gone through and scrutinized that data personally, but there are people that I trust who have that have blown the whistle and DOD has just, you know, obfuscated the data and done everything possible to try and hide it. But when you look at what your eyes are telling you, we all know something's wrong. So let's just investigate it. If crimes were committed, we contend that they have been, that they, or that if crimes were committed, we contend that they have, then, um, yeah, we need people to be held accountable for it. And yes, that us calling for that type of action is going to make certain people nervous. Mm -hmm. Has there been any response from members of Congress? Very, very, very little. But that doesn't mean there's been none. So there have been some individuals who have done things over the last couple of years where they've been vocal and some others have even kind of voiced their support. You know, uh, Senator Ron Johnson uh, held some hearings, you know, early on. And um, uh, Congressman Thomas Massey, those are two that I can think of off the top of my head. There might be others, but I can't think of any off the top of my head that have gone so far as to refer to the mandate as unlawful or illegal, which is critical. We need people to use that type of language. Was it harmful? Was it a strategic blunder? Yes, but it's more than that. Is that it, and it's not even a gray area. I mean, this whole thing, I'm not a lawyer, but this whole thing was predicated upon fraud. That's right. You, you are willfully, you know, conducting this bait and switch. So you, you approved a product, community, which you never produced, but then you've got all these other products out there which are not approved but are produced, and you're trying to pretend that those are interchangeable, which is a violation of the law. And, and, and they know that. So in my mind, there was willful collusion between the FDA and DOD and the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and, and, and so I wish Congress would take this more seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I, so my own congressman, um, I've tried to meet with him, and I've, I've been able to meet with a staffer but I have not been able to meet with the congressman. And I've, yeah, you know, I, and I, and, and I wish that I could, I wish people would take this more seriously. My congressman's a vet. He's a West Point graduate. He's also a physician. I wish he would take this more seriously. Um, well, here's what they do. They pretend to take it seriously. And, and, and I'll tell you something that, that um, just pissed me off. And I, I hate to use that kind of strong language, but I don't know how to word it any less strong than that. And here's why. If you're a senator or you're a congressional representative and you say something like, uh, DOD should issue an apology for those that they unlawfully, or, no, they won't use the word unlawfully. You know, DOD should issue an apology for those that they kicked out of service over the mandate. An apology? Let me go back to what I said a couple of minutes ago. There are people who are dead. There are people who have myocarditis or, you know, other extreme debilitations. And there are other people who lost their careers or they lost their career and they were kicked out the door without even the dignity 
of an honorable discharge and you're talking about an apology. So senators who use that kind of language, they're not serious. They're, they're cowards. And they ultimately do not care about the Constitution. They do not care about the military. They do not care about the law. And they do not care about national security. They do not. They're cowards. And they're hiding behind this weak language. And people should call them out for it. That's absolutely right. Well said. So in your document, you talk about uh, that there are those among you who are running for Congress to overhaul the government and get uh, people with integrity back into Congress, um, people who are not cowards, but who are bold um, to call things as they are illegal. Um, so you pledge to hold these military officials accountable by court-martialing, well, bringing them back from retirement, court-martialing them and holding their retirement from them. Um, or their retirement income from them, all recourse for breaking the law. But all of this hinges on those people getting into Congress and winning in fair elections. So what if we cannot achieve a government overhaul? How can we still pursue military accountability? Yeah, fantastic question. Because, I mean, this is the... Okay, so... This is the situation that we're in. Um, I'm an optimistic person by nature, but I'm not naive. And so in my mind, you have to couple your optimism with a realistic appraisal of the gravity of the situation. Otherwise, you are just naive. So I think there are plenty of reasons for us to be hopeful, but I also think we have to realize we're kind of in a bad way. I mean, we just are. So that means we got our work cut out for us. Um, so if you read the Declaration of Military Accountability, you're going to realize as soon as you start to read it, you're going to realize I would actually, okay. So first of all, I would encourage everybody to go to militaryaccountability.com, And here's what you're going to see when you go there. You're going to see the one page declaration of military accountability. You're going to see the pages of the 231 signatories who courageously put their name on the document. And then you're going to, to, uh, to see an associated petition or perhaps better worded a pledge um, that anyone can sign. You don't have to have any affiliation with the military to do so. And that means that any any American can sign that, that you agree with trying to get our country back on the track and that you agree with holding the military accountable so that it can actually uphold its charter and the reason for its existence. But when you go to militaryaccountability.com, do me a favor. Read the document to yourself and read it out loud. And I don't know that I've said this before in an interview, but I'm kind of thinking about it right now. Read it out loud to yourself. Now, now, why do I want you to read it out loud? There is a very specific voice that the document is written in. You got to credit Rob Green, the author, for this. So Rob Green, just like he did in his book, he frames the Declaration of Military Accountability in the, the kind of the historic um, framework of the, uh, or, or kind of the historic grounding of the founding period. And there's even a very specific allusion to the Declaration of Independence that's mentioned in the Declaration of Military Accountability. So when you read that out loud, you'll hear kind of that echo of history that should resonate with you. And again, you got to thank Rob Green for that. Um, so think about that founding period. So, you know, if we look back on the, the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, when, uh, when the Constitution that we still have now was, uh, was drafted and eventually ratified and sent to the states for their ratification, you know, there's the story where uh, Benjamin Franklin walks out one day, this woman approaches him and says, well, what kind of government did you give us? And he says, a republic if you can keep it. Well, what does that mean? 
what is special or particular about a Republican form of government? Again, that's Republican with a small r. Um, when you live in a republic, you have a lot of freedoms that are guaranteed and protected that you might not have if you were under some other form of government. And again, that's why our Constitution exists. But there's another side of that coin. When you live in a republic, it also means you have certain responsibilities that reside on your shoulders that you might not have if you were living under some other form of government. So a republic, if we can keep it, is because we're not sitting on the couch. It's because we are informed, active, and engaged citizens. So, um, yeah, we got a lot of problems right now in our, in, our, in our government. Absolutely. And we did not get to where we are overnight. We're not going to get out of this overnight. That is, I, I'm, I'm with you, 100%. But what I would say is, we don't need a majority. The, I used to think this when I was younger, and then the more you just kind of live and the more you study history, it's not the majority that gets things done. Unfortunately, that's just not... It's not how human beings interact in groups, right? So we don't need the 50% plus one. We need a very active and engaged and informed and loud minority. I don't know what that percentage is. 15%, 18%, I don't know. But we don't need the 50% plus one. But we've got to call out people who are not doing their jobs, like senators and congressional representatives. You know, the courts have been no friend to us. So yeah, we got our work cut out for us. It's going to be an uphill battle. So... What we need to do may be kind of simple. At least it's maybe simple for us to understand what to do. That in no way means that it's going to be easy to do. We're, we're in this for the long haul. But here's the thing. Everyone knows 2024 is a pivotal year. Everyone, I mean, you can just feel it in the air. Okay? Maybe 2024 is going to be a big year for, for good reasons. Maybe for bad reasons. Maybe some of both. But everyone knows that this is a pivotal year. That's why we had to send this document out on January 1st. And I, I mean... It is what it is. We're just going to do everything that we can. Um, we know that the Declaration of Military Accountability is not in and of itself going to save the country. We want this to be an effort that is conducted in parallel with other efforts that collectively can get our government back on track. But we do recognize the essential importance that saving the military has in correcting the overall trajectory of the country. Have you received personal pushback from your very public statements um, uh, uh, regarding bringing the military officials to accountability? Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, and what does that look like? Okay, so um, on the one end, I mean, clearly, we—I mean, sure. I mean, you're gonna have some trolls that come out. You're gonna have other individuals that may be well-intentioned, but have a rather um, unsophisticated view of how the government really operates or, or, or maybe lack the clarity of thought or the ability to understand kind of some of the complexities at hand, but some of those people may be well-intentioned. Um, and then you have others that attribute words or ideas to us that we have clearly never communicated. Remember, we're the ones here who are asking for the law to be followed. We're the ones here grounded in the Constitution not the other way around. And and there that which we've clearly communicated, that appears to get lost on some individuals that kind of level some accusations at us that are entirely unfounded. So how would you respond to someone who especially a military um member who would say that because you disobeyed an order, 
uh, though it was illegal, but they wouldn't say that. But because you disobeyed an order and because you're so outspoken regarding the need for accountability in reform, that you are a hater of the U.S. military. Uh, valid question. So, you know, even though I don't agree with the idea that question is premised upon, I think it's I think it's at least a valid question that needs to be addressed. Let's let's uh, let's answer. I'm going to answer the, the part about the order first. So. A lot of people. Uh, I'm a very charitable person, right? So. And I'm not saying, hey, look at me, look how great I am. But w what I'm saying is, is that. When I view individuals and I know that DOD and the government lied to all of us, I can understand how a person who might have been a battalion commander like myself, just to use that, that as an example, I can understand how they might not have understood exactly what was happening on August 24, 2021. There were people who didn't necessarily understand kind of the fraud that the entire mandate was premised upon. I, I get that. So I'm not necessarily critiquing people for what they believed or did not believe two and a half years ago. What I'm saying is, listen, there are so many red flags. There are so many question marks. We've been jumping up and down screaming for so long now that it's not about what you did or didn't do necessarily back then when you were admittedly you were being lied to. You know, so I, I can understand how people might have been very confused. It's the fact that you're down that dark alley that I mentioned before, and you haven't started to come back out. That's that's where I say you you might have been able to claim ignorance two and a half years ago. You you cannot claim ignorance in February of 2024. At this point, if you're a military leader and you are claiming ignorance now, it's because you're willfully ignorant. You are willfully um, not looking in, at information that's just readily available right now, and you're not doing it because you're afraid of what you might find. And so if you're willfully ignorant, then again, that means you're a coward. You're afraid of what you might find. And you, there are just too many people out there in the military that are too in love with their jobs, unfortunately. So, um, all right, lawful versus unlawful orders, just kind of in the abstract. In the military, yes, you must follow orders. For good order and discipline, yeah, you got to follow orders. Do you have to follow orders you do not like? Yes. Do you have to follow orders that may put you in danger? Yes. However, when you when you receive orders, even orders you disagree with, or even orders that you think are unsound, you still have a duty obligation to follow those orders. Now, you may be able to talk to your higher commander or the issuing authority of those orders and have a dialogue as to why you disagree or why you find it, you know, tactically unsound or whatever. Um, but there may come a point, we typically refer to it in the military as the salute point, where it's like, hey, you you express your um, reservations about this order. The order still stands. It is not illegal. Therefore, you have a duty obligation to follow it. Okay, that happens. I mean, imagine if everybody on 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 D Day had said, "Hey, I'm not going. I'm not going because this looks dangerous." Uh, that that's that's not how it works. When you join the military, I mean, you just you kind of understand there may come a time in which you're you're put in danger. It, I mean, it is what it is. So there's a huge caveat to everything I just said. And that is when you receive an order that is unlawful, or at least there's kind of some prima facie evidence that it might be unlawful. Okay, well, then then there is kind of like a huge red flag there or a, or a stop sign. And at that point, when you receive an unlawful order, not only are you not obligated to follow that order, but you are actually obligated to disobey 
that order. And believe it or not, this is this is readily taught in the military. Even very junior service members learn this. The military actually does a pretty good job at teaching people. You you do not have to follow unlawful orders, and in fact, you should not follow unlawful orders. Do they give examples when they get this training of what an unlawful order looks like? Yes, but let me give a but but let me give a Okay, so what's like the classical the, the, the most the most classic example would be Vietnam with the My Lai massacre. And that can be problematic, okay? And I understand why people use that because it's just such an extreme case where later on people tried to say, "Well, I was just following orders and that's why we, you know, carried out this massacre." But Here's the problem. This is where that's a very good question. I believe that there are many people who, you know, you grow up as a young man, you want to join the military and you, you have these, these like visions of grandeur in your own head about how one day you're going to find yourself in a, in a faraway land in glorious battle. And you're going to do something, you know, heroic and you're going to be remembered forever. Maybe it's, maybe it's common for, you know, young men to kind of have those, those visions about themselves and what they're going to achieve one day in their lives. Here's where I think people were unprepared for what happened with the whole COVID narrative. People didn't realize that that, that pivotal moment in their military career was not going to be in some faraway land in the middle of a firefight in combat when bullets are flying and they were going to have to make some sort of decision amid you know, a tactical situation that would require great physical courage and perhaps even moral courage too. They might've actually been prepared for that. What they were unprepared for, I believe, is for a situation that is kind of the moral analog to that situation that I just described, where they were back here, at least physically safe, you know, on home station, like Fort Campbell, Kentucky in my case. And now they've got a moral decision or a constitutional decision and it's extremely gray, and everyone seems to be going in a different direction, may not necessarily be the right thing to do. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people were unprepared for that scenario. They didn't realize that that might be the pivotal moment of their of their career. I mean, it was the pivotal moment of my career, you know? That was well said, and it makes it even sadder. <laughs> it is sad. You know, it yeah. is sad. But, but let me, there's, there's one thing that I didn't mention, because I'm terrible at giving succinct answers. Um, so back to what you said about those who might accuse us of hating the military. What does the military, the military exists for one reason and one reason only. And that reason is simply stated to execute violence on behalf of the American people. And if the military is incapable of doing that legally, morally, and ethically, then the military is far afield of what the American people have entrusted it to do. So if someone says to me, you hate the military, I might ask that person, okay, are you accusing me of hating the military because I am merely requiring the military to ground itself in the Constitution when military leaders take an oath to the Constitution? So if I'm asking or perhaps even demanding, demanding might be a more appropriate word, that military leaders make good on the oath to the Constitution that they've taken throughout their careers. How does that make me a hater of the military? I'm very proud of my military service. I'm very proud to be a West Point graduate. I'm proud to be a, a, a veteran. I'm proud of all the units that I served in. 
the 101st Airborne being the last. And I mean, I got relieved to command. I'm still proud to have been, um, I'm actually very proud to have been a battalion commander. It, it, it represented the culmination of my career. And even though I got fired, I'm still proud to have been, uh, you know, held that responsibility. So um, I think people who level that accusation at us don't understand that we are actually the ones trying to preserve the sanctity of the military and are actually trying to save the military from the uh, criminals and cowards. And I use both those terms very deliberately. The criminals and cowards who are masquerading in uniform um, while trying to, uh, to unfortunately destroy the military, you know? That's right. Do you think there is hope for our military? Um, I do. I do think there's hope for the military, but Again, it's not going to be easy. It, it's just, it's not going to be easy, unfortunately. Would you, yeah. would you recommend the military to um, young people today if they were to join today? I would not. I, and I, I hate to say that. And I've grappled with this question for a long time, but I would not. But again, it's not because I have anything against the military. It's that I have a problem with certain individuals that just happen to be running the military right now. And I also have a lot of problems with... Um, with the, the I mean, if I'm being honest, just the, the, the government that the military, of course, is going to answer to. So I'm a fan of military service. If some if a if a young person came to me today and said their mind was made up and that they were going to join the military, uh, I, 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 I would understand. I would understand. Um, but no, I would not encourage it if I'm just if I'm being honest. For the parents of destructive and strong little boys who in 15 years would be ready to join the military. What would you say to those parents right now? Yeah. You know, and I understand because, you know, I, I was a young man who um, decided to join the military uh, for, for many reasons. I thought I'd be good at it. I thought it'd be fun. But also patriotism was one of those things that was inculcated in me from a very young age. So I totally get it. What I might say is, if, if I address the patriotism part of that, I might suggest to someone there are other ways in which you might be able to serve the country without potentially putting yourselves under the command of um, people that may not ultimately be reliable when it comes to their oaths to the Constitution, you know? Um, but, I, but I get it. People, particularly, you know, young men, they want a challenge. And they they want to find ways in which to join an organization in which they have to prove themselves and, you know, kind of go through a rite of passage in a, in, you know, in a healthy way. Like I totally get all of that. I, I, I can be very constructive. I, I, I understand all of that, which is why it kind of pains me to say that, unfortunately, I just um, the problem is, is that once you join, it can be difficult to, you know, get out and. You don't know that you're necessarily going to be able to trust those, uh, at least right now, that are running the show. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Brad. I have one last question for you. Given what we've talked about today, if the American citizen could do one thing to combat the corruption that they see, what would it be? Yeah, so in the abstract, I would just say, you know, get off the couch. Now, again, I, like I just said, that means... That's an abstract answer, so I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to give you something a little bit more solid than that. But what I would say first, just because this is a very concrete piece of action that people can do, 
contact three people. And those three people are your two senators and your congressional representative. And if you've already contact, contacted them, contact them again. Contact them, uh, you know, in writing. You call their offices and do everything you can to try and get a meeting. And you can get with other people and kind of go in a group and try and schedule a, a group meeting. And ask them very direct questions. So don't be antagonistic. Don't be adversarial. But at the same time, don't allow yourself to be. Remember, you know, elected representatives work for us, you know. So um, if you're going to make a phone call or if you're going to write an email to to some of these elected representatives, you know, think very clearly as to what you're going to say. But specific to this issue, you know, ask them very pointedly. Do you support the military accountability movement? Have you gone to militaryaccountability.com? You know, do you support what they're doing? Have you signed the uh, the petition or the pledge? And then and then after you kind of ask those questions, then ask the more open-ended questions. What are you doing to try and put the military back on track? Do you believe that the mandate was lawful or unlawful? Are you aware of the potential collusion between the FDA and uh, and 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 DOD, I mean, make them answer very tough questions. You know, they're getting a paycheck. They should care about national security, and they should care about the fact that um the military is suffering greatly. You know, there's a thing, and I'm just gonna very very quickly. Yeah, I kind of mentioned physical injury. Let me talk real quick about moral injury, very very quickly. When you do something that's wrong and you feel guilty about it, that is a type of moral injury. Okay. When you're part of an organization and people in the organization start acting in direct opposition to the organization's own stated moral code, that disjuncture that you feel, that's moral injury. Well, what are the consequences of moral injury? It can be guilt. It can be shame. It can be disgust. It can be focused towards yourself or what you've done, but it can also be focused towards the organization. The military has a very clear culture and ethos. I mentioned that earlier. It has a very clearly defined and established system of virtues and values. But now you have the senior leaders themselves that are acting in clear opposition to the military's own stated virtues and values. That causes significant moral injury amid the greater military community. And when I say the greater military community, I mean service members, I mean veterans, but I also mean their families. You have people who are close to the military that haven't necessarily served themselves. Okay, that disjuncture that people are feeling, that is moral injury. Congress has a role in helping us fix that moral injury, along with the physical injury and everything else that has occurred in the military. Well said, Brad. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I I apologize. You know, I'm I'm passionate about this. I get a little bit long winded. So. Oh, we love that. We love that here. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I know they don't all require like a, you know, they're not all essay questions or require like a full discourse, but um, yeah, it is what it is. But thanks so much for having me. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for coming, Brad. Of course. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And of course, share this episode. Visit our website at fedsforfreedom.org. I'll see you next time.